Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by PhD Noah Silverman. Noah, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Jake. So I stumbled across one of your YouTube videos that had a lot of people had watched and you talked a little bit about some things that I'm interested in and we'll get to that as we go here. But just tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm guessing uh, a few listeners probably haven't seen that video and haven't heard uh, about your PhD, about some of your background, and might be pretty excited to, to hear what's coming next. Uh, I'm originally American. Uh, I've now been living in Hong Kong for many years, uh, a big part of which is because of the horse racing here. Uh, my PhD is in statistics, which, as you may or may not know, is, is the heart of all gambling and all betting. Uh, and I was very fortunate during the PhD program, all of our professors wanted us to do real world projects with real world data, none of this textbook stuff. And I stumbled across some things on horse racing, having known very little about it and decided to use that as the focus of most of my studies and most of my work. So along the way, learned everything there was to learn about racing and gambling and the mathematics and the probabilities all around horse racing. So that's, that's turned into a, a very interesting career path for me, kind of unintentionally. So is academia treat horse racing well then for other reasons or just simply that it's a good real life scenario to play out some of the theories and models and other things? Uh, the second one, uh, I think academia either doesn't care or some professors might actually look down on you because gambling is still seen as something of a, of a dirty practice or a vice for a lot of academics. Uh, what's nice about it is that something like horse racing you have an extremely complex system, you have tons of variables, uh, and you have re uh, reasonably fair races where people aren't cheating most of the time, and you have outcomes very, very quickly within a minute or two. So it's, it's a, with, tons of, with tons of data uh, historically available. So it's a very nice place to test models and theories and develop things. Did you have any prior experience with horse racing at all that might have swayed you to be more included and involved, or is it something that you had a, a clean slate, which is probably a fantastic thing, uh, I would imagine? It was a clean slate. I literally, I think I stumbled about a Wired magazine article about Bill Benter, uh, which I'm sure most of your uh, listeners know, and just thought it was really fascinating. And I went, I thought, well, hey, if this Benter guy did it, and I'm getting a PhD in stats, maybe I can figure something out too. So, it's a, it's a double benefit. It, it helps me towards my researching degree, and maybe I can make some money at the same time. So, PhD in stats, just tell the layperson like myself what aspects of that translates to something like horse racing, to sports betting, even to modeling out uh, these things that have many, many, many variables. What are the things that use, are most useful for you when, when tackling those types of problems? Sure. Uh, without going too far into the history, the entire field of statistics was developed by guys like Bachelier, who were some of the earliest gamblers in the world, at least gamblers on record. Uh, you know, way back hundreds of years ago, these guys were playing games with coins and cards and dice, and they wanted to figure out the mathematics of it. And that led through a very long, twisty path to things like modern probability theory and statistics. Now, statistics is a study of data and probability and the relationships of data and the probability of things happening. So that happens to be very, very applicable to things like gambling. Now, horse racing has tons of data and you have 
sort of a noisy universe of horses running and you have a very noisy universe of outcomes, but you have real money. So the whole idea is to connect and model the data in a way that money uh, travels in your favor. And, and, and that's a very complicated field. We could spend a few hours on that if you wanted to. So how how solved is the field of statistics then? That's probably a weird question and probably something you probably haven't heard before given uh, I'm certainly not a PhD in stats, but given it's you know a couple hundred years old since some of those French guys and others have looked deeply into it, is it something that's got a long way to go in terms of progression? And you know, in another two or 300 years, uh, they might be talking about how ill-equipped we were back in you know 2020 to try and deal with something like horse racing and, and modeling out all the different variables. Uh, I would say that's sort of like asking somebody how solved is algebra, how solved is calculus. Uh, the tools are there and the tools work. And, you know, fortunately, math doesn't change, right? Two plus two is four, and it's not going to change. And the square root of nine is three, and that's not going to change. Um, where you see things evolving in statistics tends to be dealing with larger or more data uh, and more complex relationships uh, and the tools around how to do that. Um, a lot of statistics, once you get deep enough into it, turns into a computer engineering problem. Uh, you know, if I have a, some simple regression with X and Y on a graph, uh, and you can solve that on a calculator. You know, your cell phone has enough computing power to do some pretty complex statistical analysis. But if I come to you with something like a DNA sample and I have 2 million variables, and then I've got 100 million people with extremely complex relationships, it might take my computer 100 years of number crunching to solve the math equation. Well, that's not realistic. So then people start developing modern techniques and custom computer chips and mathematical shortcuts and data shortcuts and things like that. That's where you see a lot of the research going. Now, when you think about solvable as far as horse racing, it's an unsolved thing because statistics is as much art as science. You know, and the first thing I'll ask you is, you know, what variables do you want to input into a formula? Well, you could spend the next 10 years coming up with variables and playing around. There's no correct answer. Uh, or outcome variable, you modeling a horse winning or losing is true false, or you're modeling the speed in meters per second, or you're modeling lengths behind the winner, or you, you know, and so on and so on. So even determining what the output is, is a, as much art as science. Then the question becomes what kind of mathematical model you want to use. Is it a linear regression, a logistic regression, uh, some weird deep learning thing? You know, there's 20 more. So you can already see that this is a very flexible problem. That, that is not solved. In your experience, who asks you the best questions to try and solve some of these problems? Are they people with no background in horse racing? Are they the horse racing nerds that have been following it for decades? Are they the people you need, the computer engineer types that need to make this all happen? Or, you know, what type of person is best equipped to, to ask you what you need to do, given if you've come from a clean slate, you may not necessarily have any ideas to begin with? It's a very good question. Uh, it's probably... Some of the finance guys in, in the horse racing world, you'll see a lot of X traders and X finance guys because they understand quantitative analysis and they have some background, um, you know, in math or at least dealing with math. And so they tend to look at things the right way. So what's the best way to describe the horse racing problem? Because you get a lot of people that grow up with gambling, grow up with horse racing, trying to beat it. And some do very well at it. Some do excellent at it. From your perspective, from the finance person, from everyone else who's dipping their toe in or, or diving in head first, mm -hmm. 
what's the best way to try and what's the best way to think about the horse racing problem itself? Is it a math problem? Is it a is it something else? What's your experience tell you when it comes to that? Good question, and I, I'll give you some broad strokes. I don't want to tip my hand too much on, on work I've done for for you know. I, I keep all my clients' information very private, obviously. Uh, trying to pick a horse to win a race is the wrong approach. Uh, that's like trying to pick a winning lottery ticket. And the amateurs will spend a lot of time and effort to figure out who's going to win the race and then to have some idea about how to bet that or Kelly formula or fractional or whatever to get rich. Almost never works. Uh, you might get lucky a few times, but you'll blow up eventually. The smart way to look at this is to say there are 10 horses or 10 races in a day. There are 14 horses in a race, right? So there's 140 horses running. There are several thousand different combinatorial bets per race, depending on which track and which rules are under. So what you really want to look at is what portfolio of hedged risks and positions can I take so that I'm reasonably confident I'll have a positive return at the end of the day. Makes sense. And then from there, you have to... So you're thinking about it as a collective then, rather than any individual horse, any individual race even. Correct. It's a combined effort. And in, in terms of crafting a portfolio then, are there better ways to think about how to do that? Are there... You know, people often say in finance, it's it, obviously a different type of market, zero-sum, positive-sum, all those other things that go into it. But in terms of crafting the best portfolio, there are systematic things and systematic ways that can be implemented let's say um you don't have to look past someone like ed thorpe and so on where they where they use the system against itself essentially or against human beings mm. is horse racing in in that vein i'm probably not describing it very well but is that something that makes sense when i'm trying to describe it i would say constructing a portfolio is a solved problem uh it's just math uh, and there are a few different approaches and there's a few dials you can turn about taste for risk and and draw down you're willing to accept and timeline for growth and things like that. But it's generally a solved problem. And, and Wall Street's done this pretty well. Uh, the whole name of the game, what you want to get down to is modeling the probability of the horse winning. Now, how you do that is the secret sauce and everybody has their own view. But if I say there are 140 horses running today and I have every horse's probability of winning and I know what the payoff is uh, from the toad on those probabilities of winning, well, now I can build a portfolio. Uh, where it starts to get more complicated is when you look at exotics, you know, the Quinellas and trifectas and Tierces and things, and you want to calculate the probability of those events uh, and then look at the payoff of those events as well. Uh, and you may wind up with you know 100,000 events and all their probabilities, and some events cross. For example, a Quinella, you know, a horse winning might trigger the horse win bet paying off, but it it may also trigger the Quinella paying off if another horse comes in. So there's overlap. Uh, but it, at a very simple base level, you need to figure out the probability of that horse crossing the finish line or finish line first, I should say. Sure. Talk about payoffs more because what you're talking about there is there can be multiple <clears throat> scenarios that are all, all one scenario that triggers multiple flow on effects, let's say. In your experience, are people looking for those types of things are they looking for you know those enormous payouts for example uh or are they looking for just percentages you know above their own benchmark to ultimately win at the end of the day the amateurs look for the big payoffs the professionals still bet on them but they don't count on them uh remember if you're a professional it's, this is not it should not be gambling it should be calculated risk uh looking for stable returns 
Uh, in fact, you could argue that if you're modeling worth tracing correctly, it's not that different than modeling something in the equities markets. Right? You've, you've modeled probability of events, you know what different payoff scenarios are, you've decided what your risk metrics are, and you're taking strategic positions. If you're managing multi-million dollar fund, again, whether it's equities or horses or any other sports betting, you want to treat it the same. What about what type of work have you done in terms of understanding the market, the marketplace, the betting options, the pools? They can be, you know, obviously those pools can be pretty dynamic. You don't have complete certainty necessarily. Mm-hmm. Is that a key component when it comes to understanding the ecosystem? Can be. Uh, I've seen models where people actually try to study the, the change in the odds in the pools uh, is a time series looking for indications of smart money. Uh, I've seen models where people try to estimate what the odds will be because when you're calculating payoffs, uh, you don't know what the payoff will be unless you're betting, you know, half a second before the bell rings and, and they, you know, they stop betting. Otherwise, it's it's a floating thing. So if you want to get more sophisticated, you have to calculate the variance and say, well, right now the horse is paying four to one, but really he could pay anywhere from three point two to four point seven to one because we know the market's going to have this much volatility on the horse, uh, and, and we can't control that. So we need to model for that variance. And that just adds another layer of complexity when you're building your portfolios. At the end of the day, I'm a big fan of something called Bayesian statistics, and, and we won't go down that path for this call. The math is too messy. But you start to view everything as a curve. Nothing is a fixed point. So the payoff of this horse is not four to one. The payoff of this horse is some bell-shaped curve, uh, Gaussian distribution. And I have to assume that where we'll land on that curve is unknown to me, but there are probabilities of the positions on the curve. So I, I will act accordingly. Same thing with the probability of the horse finishing or the speed horse runs or anything else. It's all just curves. What type of mentality does the Bayesian <clears throat> model lead you towards? Because I often find that life then becomes a curve and when the bus yep. is going to arrive becomes a curve of times that is split around when the bus is scheduled to arrive and so on. Is that is that the same in your world and people you've dealt with? Uh, some yes, some no. By the way, the bus is a Poisson distribution. That's a whole different animal. <laughs> uh, I guess you could do a Bayesian Poisson if you wanted to. Uh, the general idea behind a Bayesian, though, is nothing's a point, right? You're you're just you think of an Excel spreadsheet, but instead of adding numbers, you're adding curves of different shapes. Uh, and why I like that is it reflects the real world more, right? The real world is uncertain. Whether you're looking at arrival times of buses or how fast a horse will run, or you know how many grams of breakfast did the horse eat, well, it's probably a curve. And how accurate was the scale? Well, that probably has a curve too. What I like about that is when you turn the crank, what you get out at the end is another curve. In a sense, the way I explain it when I work with clients is really what I'm doing is quantifying uncertainty. How fast, how many meters per second will the horse run today? Well, if you know nothing about horse racing, the answer is, I don't know, between zero and a million. Well, I know the average horse runs 17 meters per second, give or take in Hong Kong. Okay. Well, we can start to put a curve around that. And as I learn more about this horse, and I learn more about his past performance, and I know if he's running on dirt or if he's on turf, and if it's the ground is firm or if the ground is muddy and wet, I can start to reduce that uncertainty, and I can get my curve tighter and tighter as, as I add more, add more information. At some point, there'll be some variance or some of that curve that I simply cannot explain. Now, what the naive or older style of math does is you just take that as a point and say, well, the average is 17.2, so okay, that's what we have. The more advanced or the Bayesian view says, no, we've we've now shrunken this curve 
as much as we can, but there's still a curve there. So let's account for that. Um, and you can turn the crank all the way down into the betting and payoff and say, well, the expected value of this horse, given the curve, is between minus 20 cents and positive, I don't know, 72 cents. And you know, 63% of that curve is in the positive and the other 37% in the negative. Okay, now what do you do with that? Well, that now depends on your taste for risk. And that now, now you start looking at other ways I can hedge off some of that tail side risk of that curve that it's a negative return. But it gives you a better view of the world and, and obviously it's more sophisticated, you need more math. Uh, not a lot of syndicates are doing it yet just because they don't have the math guys. What likelihood of someone jumping into that world and it completely blowing up is there going to be? Because it sounds like if, if you're talking minus 20 cents to positive 72 cents and the, the distribution is obviously good enough in that situation, what about if someone hasn't cranked the wheel properly enough in the, the front end uh, or the beginning and then they right. get to that point? Right. And it, is it likely to wildly blow up and they're completely off track? Yes, yes. Seeing it happen too many times. I can't count the number of times I've had someone either email me because they've they've solved it all and they're going to get rich overnight um, or want me to work for them for free because they're sure they've got the winning formula, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they always blow up. They always crash. It's it's inevitable. You know, I, I'm impressed by the syndicates that just make a couple of percent conservatively and, and have a team of smart guys and no ego. And those are the guys that tend to stick around a long time and make money. How noisy is horse racing generally? Very. I think in addition, you know, a horse is an animal, right? So the animals have a lot of variance. Um, I think there's just some random luck on how the horse's hoof hits the ground. You know, maybe he hit a rock or a, a clump of dirt differently. You know, maybe he was a, a millisecond late getting out of the gate. Maybe he's a little sore from the last race. Or maybe, and I think this is a big part of it, the trainer's playing some games with not necessarily running every horse to full capacity. So you have the randomness of the horse, the randomness of the actual race event, and the randomness of the trainer strategy all layered in there, plus the jockey, plus plus whatever, ton more stuff. It's a very noisy place. So is that a place then people might be interested in starting, just given that's the case? Or is it tighten up on portfolio construction, tighten up on getting math guys and gals on your team to to cover those areas that you know you can do pretty well on and the noisy stuff like the the horse itself and performance levels and you know blood count and hoof changes in the gear for example all those types of things uh is that something worth focusing on you need to focus if you want to make money you need to focus on all of it um unfortunately most people take shortcuts from either one side or the other and that's why they wind up blowing up there is no shortcut if you think you can screw around you know, on your PC for two or three months and you found some formula to make money on horse racing, you're most likely wrong. It's just the, the markets in Hong Kong are extremely efficient and there are a ton of very, very professional teams who've been doing this for years. Um, and unfortunately, you need to be good at all of it. It's not, um, you know, if you want to be a gymnast, you have to be good at a somersault or a handstand or a cartwheel or a, a flip or a backwards flip. You kind of got to be good at all of it if you want to compete. And, you know, Hong Kong is the major leagues. It's the top people in the world here. So tell me about the efficiency. I wanted to ask from a layman, you know, trying to think about the efficiency of certain markets, something like, let's just say, Hong Kong racing generally. Is it a spectrum where it moves and goes across the, the line of, let's just say, perfection or whatever you want to call it? 
is it straddling that? Is it consistently moving? How do, How is the best way for someone like myself to think about the efficiency of those markets in something that I can potentially visualize or put down on paper? Well, again, I, I have to be careful. I can't give away too much of the secret sauce. But in general, the wind market in Hong Kong is very efficient. Horses tend to pay off what they should pay off based on their chances of winning. Um, and, and, and that's just because of the, you know, Hong Kong is a very smart public betting on races and it has a lot of pro syndicates. You know, the whole name of the game in betting, if you want to boil it down to the simplest concept, is you're hunting for inefficiencies. You're looking for bets that are paying off more than they should and then creating some portfolio to take advantage of those. If every single bet and every single animal paid off exactly what was the correct percentage for its probability, well, then there's no money to be made. In fact, you'll lose the track take over time. So you, you're the whole name of the game is hunting for inefficiencies. And as more and more people find the inefficiencies, well, then they go away. So it becomes a tighter and tighter game of trying to find weird little quarters of inefficiencies that the other guys haven't found yet. So it sounds like part of that then is you've basically to look at the game itself or the, the betting market ecosystem and game theory parts of it out to try and find, you know, if win markets are as they are, mm-hmm. then you've got to search for other places and you've got to see what the see what the money's doing, where it's flowing, see how that's changing over time. Correct. Not only you've got to do the portfolio construction and you've got to do the, the horse itself aspect of performance and so on, but you've got to have a more broader, holistic view of what's happening. Correct. Correct. Um, you know, if I was giving advice to a beginner, uh, the, the very first place to start is modeling the probability of the horse winning. If you can come to me and show me, here are 500 horses that ran that I said had a 20% chance of winning, and you know what? 20% of them won. 100 of those horses won. Well, that means that your 20% estimation was accurate, and which ideally you want to do that in, in, in strata. Here's another 500 horses that I said had a 10% chance of winning, and you know what? 50 of them won. Once you know your probabilities are reliable, then you can start looking for inefficiencies. Hey, I gave this horse a 10% chance of winning, right? And it's and it's paying off 11 to 1, 12 to 1. Well, wait a minute. That's inefficient. It's paying off more than it should for that horse to to win. That's an opportunity. How often do you see opportunities, let's say, or back testing that looks good or, you know, in theory it looks fantastic and then you get to the the major leagues and you get to the pressing the button, the go button, and then it, it doesn't work out or something's not right or there's always because there always seems to be different overfitting and all these fancy words that the people use Mm. later on to say well that's why that blew up of course that was the case we knew that from the beginning when it may not be that obvious when you're going through the process with my models or other people's models (laughs) hopefully not yours it's the rest of us uh mere models i i I like think i know what i'm doing Uh, with most people that happens a lot most people's back testing is just overfitting um, and, and, and they're just hunting for an overfit in a sense. Uh, and you know, if you give any sense of data and you, and you hunt long enough, you'll find something that overfits that old data and lets you think you're going to get rich. Um, if anything, you need to do what's called a walk forward test, which is paper trade for a while, um, accounting for fees, accounting for slippage, accounting for all that stuff and see how you still do. Uh, e- even then you can fool yourself. Uh, but, you know, going back to an example, we have a horse with a 10% chance of winning. Let's just talk about win bets to keep it simple. And that horse is paying 12 to 1. That's great. But a 10% chance of winning means you're going to lose that bet 90% of the time. 
So you need to account for that and you need to have a bank rule that can handle that and handle that drawdown. Yes, hypothetically, if you ran that bet a million times, you would be profitable. But there also aren't that many races in a year and there may not be that many horses with a 10% chance of winning that you find an efficiency on. So how do you deal with that? So in addition to back testing, you need to forward test and you need to understand what to do, even if your probabilities are right. Small tangent on that. There's something in the academic world called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And uh, if you don't know it, it's worth looking up. It's a bit funny. But two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, did a very famous study where they looked at people's self-assessment of skill. And what they found is people on average that have learned a little bit give themselves the highest rating of how good they are. And the true experts in the field, the, two, the true gurus are the ones who say, getting a handle on it, but I've still got a lot to learn. Uh, it's fascinating. And I see this so much in horse racing. You know, Every guy who's done an online machine learning course for three months or something on Coursera or learned to use a couple of basic stats tools or, or, or some really basic stuff plays around with horse racing for six months in his spare time after work and is now convinced he's going to be the next, the next multimillionaire. And, you know, if I, if they come to me and I try to give them some practical advice, they inevitably get very upset because they, you know, invested six months and they're, they're confident they figured they've solved it. And every time they blow up without fail, uh, like, like a hundred out of a hundred, um, this stuff is harder than it looks and it's deeper, more complicated than it looks. There is no, quick model you're going to find online. There is no self-taught machine learning course that you're going to do that's going to make you money on this. There are armies of PhDs playing with this stuff, uh, and even we have trouble making profit. The art versus science part is, is also interesting because I'm guessing you can have as much of the skill set as you need, but then you've got to have that feel to, to navigate through it all, and obviously all the other mental challenges that come with things like gambling doesn't make it simple either. Correct. Um, one of the things I try to do, and I've done with uh, or two clients, I did this with successfully. We always get the old season gray haired punter. You know, the guy who's been doing horse racing for 30, 40 years and has met all the trainers and jockeys and is all at the track every day he can and just knows. He can look at a race and just know. Um, so the question, the trick is, you know, there's no magic here, right? He's not psychic. He's picking up cues, he's absorbing data and processing it in his head. And he then doing some math subconsciously and turning into his gut instinct of how that horse is going to do. So I've gone with some of these guys and you sit with them and you start to say, well, why that horse? What'd you see and why? What did that guy do? What looks interesting? And what, what I'm trying to do is tease out what's the actual data point? This, what is this guy actually looking at? And then is that something we can quantify with a number and put into a model? But uh, the old gray hair guys have a lot to contribute. Or I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. There was a jockey... I have to be careful here, but from another country who was visiting Hong Kong, a friend of some friends, and he wasn't working. He wanted to get drunk and party and chase girls. And we we're off at Happy Valley on a Wednesday night, and he is getting drunk and chasing girls and having fun. And I don't think he's – I think he's allowed to bet, but I'm not sure. And, and we were looking at the horses coming out from the ring, and he looked at one horse, and he was very drunk. He says, what a beautiful ass. Oh, my God, that horse has the most beautiful ass. I love him. And he ran and put a couple thousand dollars down on a horse to win. And the horse killed it, and he made a fortune. And I thought, wow, somehow, but as a jockey's eye, he just watched the muscles of the horse and how that horse moved as it like kind of you know prance over onto the track, and that was enough for him. That's fascinating because there are many stories and many people that just watch the horses. They go to the yard, they go to the ring, they use that intuition, that skill. And I would imagine, though, it, it still seems like something that's incredibly challenging to quantify 
mm. correctly enough over a longer period of time where it doesn't lead to blow up as well. True, true. And and again, everybody thinks they've got an edge because it's sexy and it's romantic and it's fun and you want to think you're, you're mm. doing all this great stuff. But it's really um, it, it's really not. You know, now, how did the horse jockey think that horse had a beautiful ass? I have no idea. Could I sit that jockey down and run 5,000 horses in front of him and have him say yes or no and then sit there with a tape measure and figure out what is it about each horse's ass that was good or bad? Yeah, you could probably model that out, but good luck making that happen in real life. So you mentioned bankroll before. Is there a clear, obvious consensus towards Cali? Is there a multitude of different approaches that people use? What's the the thought around that from your world and as well as the real world in terms of people in Hong Kong doing it every season? Uh, Kelly is mathematically correct. There's no question of consensus or not consensus. Kelly, Kelly is right. Is, is right. Um, Kelly is always right. The question is, do you have enough bankroll to absorb the Kelly? They do fractional Kelly to be safe. So basically, the whole reason you use fractional Kelly is because your probability estimates could be wrong. And if you're wrong by a tiny bit and you use Kelly, you'll blow up. Uh, Kelly can also be very volatile. Your bankroll can swing a lot if you use Kelly. So if you bet half Kelly, you're only giving up a little bit of potential profit for a much safer uh, uh, protection against drawdown. And that's where, that's where you want to be. So tell me about academia for the certainly the younger punters out there that might be looking into this space. Is there a, a wealth of knowledge to be gained from digging into some of the even more recent papers and research going on, or is it something that it's very difficult to find some of the nuggets and unless you really know what you're looking for or someone like yourself reading a paper that comes out next week will be able to tell pretty quickly if it has value, or is it something that maybe people should go and see what's cutting edge in parentheses and worth spending the time reading through? Other way around, people should learn the fundamentals, right? If I'm going to build a Formula One race car, uh, I first need to understand the basics of how to use a wrench, right? And and, and how and what a carburetor is, and, and you know the tools haven't changed. Uh, what you see in academia are for horse racing. A lot of times, people will just take as existing tools and find some new way of reassembling them. Uh, for me, the tool, you know, the problem is not the tools. There is no magic tool you're going to find in an academic paper where you're going to read it and think, aha, now I can go get rich. Uh, the number one challenge when you get into this is feature engineering. What data goes into your model and how do you standardize and clean up that data is the number one thing. Uh, you know, whether I use logistic regression, um, I use conditional logistic regression, I use a probit, um, you know, there's a dozen other models. It, it, they they kind of get to the same result, give or take. It, it sort of doesn't matter. Uh, it does, but only at the minutiae. Feature engineering is everything. You know, take the weight carried by the horse, right? Well, you could look simple things. Is it weight? Is it weight per distance? Is it weight as a function of the horse's body weight? Is it the change in the weight from last time? Is the change in the weight from last time relative to the other race entrance change in the weight from their last runs? Um, and on and on and on. I could, I could sit here now and we could probably come up with 30 variables all related to weight carried, maybe 40. Which one of those is important and how do you weight it and put it in? Who knows? That's the art. And you could, again, do that for a million other things about the race. Um, so that, to me, is the interesting part. You know, what relationship does the relative change in weight carried from the horse's last race 
as a fraction of his body weight, how does that relate to his speed in meters per second on a dirt track in firm conditions, which he only ran once before in his life? Well, that's good to know. How do you find that and how do you model it? And maybe it's not there. Maybe you run that model and you say, ah, it makes a 0.0015 difference. Well, okay, now what? Maybe it makes a difference. So it's, it's digging that out is the important part. Which math formula you throw it into is not as important. So what should people be thinking about when they have no idea how to interpret some data or how to factor something in? And just a random example, what about wind? If they know how windy it is, they know its direction, they know how many kilometers per hour, miles per hour, whatever it is, but they have no idea what to do with that. They don't know if it helps the front runners because it's, you know, or it helps the horse that's second because they get a nice cut into the race or it helps the, the back markers because when they get to the straight, it's behind them and so on. All those different things and they don't necessarily know what to do with it all. Is there, is it best to leave it out? Is it best to just leave it neutral? What's, what's something that can be done in that instance? Well, uh, I keep going back to this, but you need fundamentals. I cannot draw that enough about fundamentals. You need to think like a scientist, right? We're going to study wind. Okay, well, wind in relationship to what? Front runners, back runners, all the horses in the field, uh, you know, what kind of track service? You want to make a scientific study of this. You need to understand some statistical analysis and how does the wind correlate to running speed of the horse? Well, you know, first principles. You know, which direction is the wind blowing? What's the surface area of a horse's body in square meters? And, you know, how is the angle of the wind impacting the surface area of the front of the horse? And can I get data from the same conditions with and without wind to see what the delta is? And you, you need to think like a scientist. So you need to learn proper scientific methods and proper statistical and data analysis. I know that's not sexy, but that's that's the grind of doing this if you want to if you want to be successful. And you could do that for hundreds of variables. And the interesting bit is some variables will overlap. Um, for example, you, know, you might find two or three variables and they're kind of picking up the same thing. So you don't need them all in your model because they're so highly correlated. For example, this is a, this is a bad example, rain and you know muddiness, how slow the going is on the track. You might separately analyze each one and say, wow, if it's raining, the horses run slow and wow, if the track is muddy, the horses run slow. Look what I found. I'm going to put both rain and mud in my model. But then when you have correlated variables like that, it actually breaks a lot of regression models. So you need to have the wisdom to look and say, oh, you know what? I only need one of these. Let me Now let me do some math to figure out which one. Mm-hmm. And generally, what? How many, how many variables are we talking about in these models? Is it 150, 200, 250, higher, lower? Is it a, a vast range Could and be. it's just personal preference? Could be. Depends on what kind of model you're running, too. Again, are you modeling meters per second? Are you modeling lengths behind the winner? Are you modeling probability of finishing in the top three? You know, or et cetera, et cetera. So what are you modeling? And it sounds like some of this becomes a computer problem at some point as well if you're talking about hundreds of models crunching a lot of information Correct. and data as quickly as you possibly can to make it useful in a betting context. This was a big part of my PhD work. Uh, when you get to a certain level... The professors basically turn to you and say, all this, all this theory on the whiteboard is nice. Now go make it work. Uh, and so you have to start writing computer code efficiently. And you literally have to turn into a computer engineer. I need a reliable database to store my data. How am I going to fetch my historical race data every day? How am I going to fetch the upcoming race card? How am I going to get live odds from the track feeding in? Now, 
all data has problems. Even official data from the Hong Kong Jockey Club actually has occasional errors in it. So what is my software to standardize and clean the data and look for data that seems wrong? Hey, the average horse weight carried is 123 pounds, but wait a minute, this horse has 1,230. So obviously there's a zero something glitch, but does the software catch that? Does it report it to me? Is there a human that fixes it? Do you delete that data point and now you're missing that horse's run? You know, what do you do? Once you have the database, then you need software to run the models. And then you need to be able to test to make sure the software has ran the model correctly. And then you need to test your output. You need to make sure the output is in the right format. You need to be able to back test that output and forward test the output. It, you literally need, uh, you know, switch hats to be a complete software developer, computer engineer. It sounds like this stuff is a little bit too difficult. Uh, <laughs> my general advice to amateurs is don't go into this as a, as a field. It's a lot of work. As I've said before, you are not going to take a three-month or six-month online course and get rich from horse racing. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of sexy, AI, ML, all these terms, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and so on, any mm. of them useful? Are they applicable to things like modeling out horse racing? How do people who are doing this well use it, or is it generally you mm. know, a waste of people's time and, and those are just fancy words to, to put on PowerPoint presentations? Well, I just got back from Thailand, and as the Thais say in English slang, same, same, right? There is just statistical modeling. That's all there is, right? All the stuff we've been talking about with scientific process and analyzing variables and dealing with curves and, and model noise and error and feature selection, that's it. That's all there is in the universe. Um, so people used to call it statistical learning theory. Uh, then the term I like to use, we started calling it machine learning because you're using software, basically you write down these extremely complex models and you've got coefficients and weights on the variables. You're using software to learn the optimal weights to make your model accurate. There's some error function and you're trying to, you know, errors in, as far as accuracy and you're trying to reduce the error function, increase the accuracy and all the games with that. And, and, and that's been a field of study for years. Now, machine learning, some knucklehead journalist called it AI because <laughs> it sounded sexy. Uh, and now it gets all the press and attention. But when we look at AI, it's just machine learning, which is just a fancy term for statistical learning theory. There's nothing else in there. It's not new. It's not a thing. Uh, it's some new computer engineering software got developed uh, to do something called deep learning. Uh, this is a quick tangent. There's something called a perceptron and something called a neural net. Perceptrons were developed in the 1940s, I think. And neural nets were big in the 60s and 70s. And it, it does the kind of black box logistic regression in, in a very simplified sense. Uh, a guy named Hinton at the University of Toronto figured out a shortcut where you could stack a couple of neural nets on top of each other and, and get some nice results. Again, doing machine learning. And people called that deep learning, deep because it had layers of these neural nets. Remember, neural nets from the 1960s based on a perceptron from the 1940s. And once this deep learning it sort of launched this whole hype around AI, but there's no magic there and there's nothing new there. Throwing horse race data into deep learning will be probably the biggest waste of time you can possibly do. Are there any exciting developments going on in Hong Kong at the moment around horse racing? Nothing new. Same stuff. Syndicates, syndicates are batting. People are playing. Um, you know, that's, that's actually my, my other part of my day job. I don't just do horse racing. I develop machine learning and AI models for different industries. So I'm, this is literally what I do all day, every day. For, because for me, I don't care if it's a horse running or stock portfolio 
or your medical company looking at patient data or whatever, it's all the same mathematics. Just different subjects? Yeah, it's the same scientific process, right? It's the same reasoning. It's the same modeling. It's just you're looking, yeah, you're looking at a different thing. So what does the future hold then? Are you going to stick it out in Hong Kong and try and uh, beat the markets there for a few more decades? Or are there other exciting projects on the next frontier? Well, I love Hong Kong, so I'm, I'm going to stick around here for a while. Um, I'm developing a – in parallel all this, I've been working in the cryptocurrency space for a long time. And I know when people hear cryptocurrency, they start to roll their eyes. But I'm developing um, – well, I should back up. So the other hat I wear doing all this machine learning work is I work as a quant, in a sense a quant for hire. I'll go in and help hedge funds and algorithmic traders and high-frequency traders. Uh, I'll go in and solve the, the tricky math bits that they don't know how to do as a, as a specialist, more like a, a sniper or, or a mercenary as, a, as opposed to just a, a regular number cruncher. Um, from that, I realized that a lot of the really nice derivatives in the financial world uh, both very complex ones that the traders want and kind of the fun, exciting ones that people almost want to gamble or take a punt on, they're missing from the cryptocurrency world. So I developed uh, a new business where we're going to allow trading of cryptocurrency derivatives um, and not the ones that you see on BitMEX or the or uh, I think Binance has some now, but we're, we've developed our own that are kind of fun and easy to play with. Uh, it's called Light, uh, as in Light Options. Light.cx is the website. Or we call it LCX for short, but Light.CX is up and running, and there's a free trial account, uh, so people are welcome to come and check it out. In two years from now, when it goes really well, what does that mean for the regular investor or someone who's involved in crypto now and in a couple of years' time is potentially looking at different things going on in the crypto world that might be of interest to them? Well, I think the crypto world's here to stay. It's clearly not going away. The, the, the big question is um, where, where will it go, right? I think more and more people are going to want to see traditional derivatives come into the crypto world. I think you're going to see more gambling on blockchain. I'm sure some people will get in trouble for gambling on blockchain, and some people will launch successful businesses, easy predictions to make. Uh, I will say, and again, a tangent, any um, get-rich-quick-buy-our-coin-because-it's-going-to-go-up scheme is probably not worth your time. But I think in general, crypto is going to be around and it's probably going to change the punting space a lot. I think it's it's an interesting place for a lot of people in gambling and poker and sports betting and horse racing. A lot of the people that are attracted to those uh, different markets often have a, an overlap with crypto. Do you think it's something mm. that a lot of these platforms, once they become far more mainstream, let's say, which is probably not a great word to use, but you know, a lot of people in the US mm. know about Coinbase and they know about some of these exchanges, but do you think we're going to see uh, them consolidate into some more mainstream exchanges, let's say, that are often used in more broader markets? Or do you think it's going to be piecemeal for a bit bit longer here? Touched on two things there, right? Um, first, consolidation, you're going to see both. I think you're going to see a lot of roll-up and consolidation into the big exchanges, but those are also going to be very heavily and traditionally regulated. So at some point, Coinbase won't be any different than interactive brokers which then motivates the smaller exchanges and the more, cre well, we'll call it creative jurisdictions to operate for people that want to be outside of that mainstream world. So I think you'll always have both. Now, when it comes to gambling on blockchain, or gambling with crypto, I should say, uh, I think we're going to see two trends. Some, there, there's definitely a need to streamline the punting world and make it more efficient. Right. If, if I want to bet on a horse race or a football match and I'm in Hong Kong 
and you're in the US and we want to bet $20 on it just between us, that's very hard to do. I, mean, I can phone you, we can PayPal it, we can whatever, mm -hmm. but a cryptocurrency can make that very efficient or some third guy is a total stranger in Argentina wants to get in on the bet. Sure, why not? So I think crypto facilitates a lot of nice business models and it removes a lot of friction from gambling and betting and all those games of chance. That's a good and bad thing. The problem is it also attracts all the shady people that want to do inappropriate or illegal things or money launder. So the two kind of come together. So you're going to see a lot of businesses swinging back and forth and either innovating and avoiding trouble or innovating and getting in trouble, flying under the radar, flying over. So it's a trade-off between convenience versus serving illegal customers. And that's going to be an interesting, well, interesting thing to watch. I'd be careful where I got involved. Yeah, absolutely. So one final question for you, more personal, I would say. Mm -hmm. How do you mm. decide how you allocate your time? There's obviously a lot of interesting projects going on. Mm -hmm. We went through the the most you know recent project you just touched on, obviously horse racing. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting finance topics you're involved in. What What is the hierarchy that you use to decide what's the best use of time? It's a good question. Uh, it's funny. I just came back. I was stranded in Thailand for four months because of this COVID mess. Uh, and it, yeah, I was on a small island, actually. <laughs> but it gave me a lot of time to reflect and think about life's plans for the rest of 2020. Uh, and I decided to make a bit of study on time efficiency and productivity and read a ton of books and took notes and tried to figure out the exact question you asked, right? How do I split my time? Because 24 hours in a day is not enough. Um, and it's a question of balance. It's in statistics or machine learning, there's uh, something, something called a one-armed bandit problem named after slot machines. But the idea is explore versus exploit. Right? How much effort you put into exploiting what you already know is good and how much effort you put into exploring new opportunities. And it's a trade-off. And so for myself, I try to balance that trade-off between working for clients that I have and working on existing businesses and how much time do I spend exploring new opportunities and looking at new avenues that I think will have potential in the future. It's a bit of an investment play. For example, I, I work for my existing clients. I've spent a lot of time developing Light.CX, which now that it's built, I have, let, I have a little more free time. So as part of my exploring, I'm actually doing an online certificate course with Stanford on cryptography. I'm not a cryptographer. I have no clients that want any cryptography from me. But I think in the future, as cryptocurrency and blockchain becomes more prevalent, being an expert in cryptography may open up a lot of doors. So it's balancing my time between all of it in a you know creative way. I will say that I use an online tool called Asana, no affiliation. Uh, but it makes it very easy for me to manage all my work. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a good place to stop. We could go for probably hours on this stuff, and I, I have a million <clears throat> follow-up questions, but hopefully uh, next time we do this, we can talk more in detail about how the, the platform's going, about you know Hong Kong and racing, if that's still a priority, and all the other things going on in your world. But it's good to, to spend some time having a chat and getting a snippet of what's uh, what's happening. I'm glad I could help. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking and, and, and happy to come back anytime.